People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and you with me for the next hour. I've got a bit of a sound in my throat, but I'm feeling fine, and I didn't want to miss the book show. We've got a lot of books to get through today, and uh, a great mixture, fiction, non-fiction, some real, what I call, headlines or agenda-setting non-fiction, the type of books that you really have to read in order to know what's going on in the world around you. And we're going to start with just one such book. It's written by Roger McNamee. He is a big player in Silicon Valley. He was an early investor in Facebook, and he played a small role as a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. His book is subtitled Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, and is cheekily titled the book Zucked, because we've all been zucked by Mark Zuckerberg. A Facebook shareholder and early mentor of Mark Zuckerberg, Roger McNamee had every reason to stay on the bright side and look at the positive in Facebook and the prospects he had just to keep rolling in more money when Facebook first had its IPO and then started making an absolute mint when they sold their users to advertisers and third parties. But he felt he could no longer look on the bright side of Facebook. The story in this book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, has two sides. There's Roger McNamee's story, how he grew up in America, ended up in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, and became an investor in small technology startups, how he was approached to give advice to Mark Zuckerberg in the early years of Facebook when when Zuckerberg was faced with the opportunity to sell Facebook for $1 billion and he needed some advice. Someone teamed him up with Roger McNamee. Roger told him, whatever you do, don't sell out. You're the only person who has the passion for Facebook. In, 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 in another corporate's clutches, it will just become one of many products. Mark Zuckerberg listened to Roger McNamee's advice. They remained friends. And a few years later, when Mark Zuckerberg needed to take someone in to help run the business side of Facebook, it was Roger McNamee who made the suggestion to, um, to Sheryl Sandberg to take a job at Facebook. And she's become Mark Zuckerberg's almost Siamese twin. The two of them at the top of Facebook have led this into, have led their company into un, uncharted territory in terms of the influence, the power, and the the ability for one company to form society. The second part of the book, well, the, fa- the first part of the book is his story. Then when he realizes that Facebook is becoming a force of evil in society, it's a platform where bad actors can get up to no good, he starts a campaign to try reform Facebook. That's the one part of the book, that whole campaign. The second is a very strong critique 
on the technology companies that wield so much power in the world, on the abstract level, a critique. So there's the narrative and then there's the critique. Both of them come together in this book, Zucked, waking up to the Facebook catastrophe. I want to read a few passages from the book straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. I'm talking about a book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe by Roger McNamee. He is a Facebook, not quite a Facebook insider. He's a Silicon Valley insider, an early investor in Facebook, and an early mentor, one of many mentors to Mark Zuckerberg. In a chapter called The Children of Fog, he introduces us to a lecturer at Stanford University, Professor Fogg, who runs a course teaching people how to master persuasive technologies. And this is quite a an eye-opener. This is just um, a short quote from the chapter, The Children of Fog. In companies like Facebook and Google, Fog's dis- disciples often work in what is called the growth group. The growth hackers charge with increasing the number of users' time on site and engagement with ads. They have been very successful. When we humans interact with Internet platforms, we think we are looking at cat videos and posts from friends in a simple news feed. What few people know is that behind the news feed is a large and advanced artificial intelligence. When we check a news feed, we are playing multidimensional chess against massive artificial intelligences that have nearly perfect information about us. The goal of the AI is to figure out what content will keep each of us highly engaged and monetized. Success leads the artificial intelligence to show us more content like whatever engaged us in the past. For the 1.47 billion users who check Facebook every day, reinforcement of beliefs every day for a year or two will have an effect. Not on every user in every case but in enough users, in enough situations, to be both effective for advertising and harmful to democracy. Another short quote from the book Zakt. Facebook wants us to believe that it is merely a platform on which others act and that it is not responsible for what those third parties do. Both assertions warrant debate. In reality, Facebook created and operates a complex system built around a value system that increasingly conflicts with the values of the users it is supposed to serve. Where Facebook asserts that users control the experience by picking the friends and sources that populate their newsfeed, in reality, an artificial intelligence, algorithms, and menus created by Facebook engineers control every aspect of the Facebook experience. With nearly as many as many monthly users as there are notional Christians in the world, and nearly as many daily users as there are notional Muslims, Facebook cannot pretend its business model and design choices do not have a profound effect. Facebook's notion that a platform with more than 2 billion users can and should police itself also seems both naive and self-serving, especially given the now plentiful evidence to the contrary. Even if it were just a platform, Facebook has a responsibility for protecting users from harm. Deflection of responsibility has serious consequences. A very interesting part of the book is stringing together all those news headlines from the Russian swaying of the American electorate to Cambridge Analytica, 
putting all of it into a narrative, a timeline. We, intru- we are introduced to the people who played a role in raising the the issue and bringing it to the American government's attention. And then what actually happened in all those congressional or Senate hearings following the actual narrative of how Facebook was put in the spotlight because of what the company had allowed to happen on its platform. What I found very interesting here, uh, every page has something of great interest. Another short quote. None of us wants to admit to any addiction. We like to think of ourselves as being in control. As a lifelong technology optimist and an early adopter of new products, I was at far greater than average risk of tech addiction. For example, I got an iPhone on the very first day they were available and have bought into each subsequent generation on day one. I'm a compulsive checker of my phone despite having turned off notifications and gotten rid of several apps. I did not understand my behavioral addiction until I joined forces with Tristan Harris in April 2017. Until then, I thought I bore sole responsibility for the problem. I assumed that only people with my heat-seeking love for technology would fall victim to unhelpful tech behaviors. Tristan opened my eyes to the reality that technology companies have devoted some of their best minds to exploiting the weaknesses in human psychology. They did so on purpose, to make money. And when they had made themselves ridiculously wealthy, they kept doing it because it never occurred to them to do anything else. When called to account for this, tech companies blame pressure from shareholders. Given that the founders of both Facebook and Google have total control of their companies, that excuse falls short. He goes on to describe exactly what happened on the Facebook platform with the Russian hackers who tried to sway the American election, what happened with Brexit, and scary, very, very scarily, the horror story of how millions of Facebook accounts were handed over to companies, third parties like Cambridge Analytica, where information about people's life choices, their political choices, were used by third parties, and even though Facebook might have closed that facility down and all their current account holders' data is more protected, I wouldn't say totally protected, but more protected, the leaks that have happened in the past are irreversible. That information is out there. Who had Cambridge Analytica passed that information or sold that information to on millions, dozens of millions of 50 or 60 million account holders. Who have, those, who have they sold that information onto? And Facebook always said we're just a platform. The book is pretty powerful. And one of the most wonderful things at the end of the book is he has a biographic essay where he goes through all the books he has read, but he writes as an essay. And I read through that. It was the first part of the book that I actually read just to see how many of the books that he's mentioned I have mentioned here on people of the book and actually I was pleasantly surprised that some of the most important books on text impact on our world have been reviewed here 
on people of the book. So this book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe by Roger McNamee. It's published by HarperCollins. It's agenda-setting nonfiction. It is available. Now, for a number of just quick shout-outs, books that you have to look out for, books that will give you fantastic, enjoyable reading opportunities. Um, one of them is called Professor Chandra um, Follows His Bliss. It's written by Rajiv, I must get this right, Rajiv Balasubramanyam. It's published by Chatter and Windus. I'll talk about that and a few other good reads straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book we're going to look at is called Professor Chandra Follows His Bliss, and it is written by Rajiv Balasubramanyam. Professor Chandra is approaching his 70th birthday. This eminent Cambridge economist has been overlooked for the Nobel Prize again. His wife has left him for a West Coast hippie, and relations with his three offspring are tricky to say the least. It takes a spiritual retreat in California, where he ar- when he arrives, everyone in the retreat is naked, for Chandra's moment of clarity to reveal itself. Impressively, the author, Balasubramanyam, is something of a Zen exponent himself, and he actually visited the retreat that he mentions in the book. He manages to balance satire and self-enlightenment in his first novel in nearly 20 years, and it's a surprisingly soulful family tale that has echoes of Jonathan Franzen's corrections in its witty exploration of three children trying to free themselves from the influence of their parents. It's real, it's funny, and it will put a smile on your face. That's Professor Chandra Follows His Bliss, Barajiv Bala. Balasubramanyam. The next book is something totally, totally different. Uh, when it comes to science fiction, I don't read a lot, but there's a name that's beginning to stand out more and more clearly every release of one of his books, and he releases a few in the course of a year. His name is Brandon Sanderson. He's published by Victor Golans, and his new book is called Scarward. From Brandon Sanderson, the number one New York Times best-selling author of the Reckoner series, Words of Radiance, and the internationally best-selling Mistborn series, comes the first book in an epic new series about a girl who dreams of becoming a pilot in a dangerous world, at war for humanity's future. Spencer's world has been under attack for hundreds of years. An alien race called the Krell leads onslaught after onslaught from the sky in a never-ending campaign to destroy humankind. Humanity's only defense is to take to their ships and fight the enemy in the skies. Pilots have become the heroes of what's left of the human race. Spencer has always dreamed of being one of them, of soaring above earth and proving her bravery. But her fate is intertwined with her father's, a pilot who was killed years ago when he abruptly deserted his team placing Spencer's chances of attending flight school somewhere between slim and zero. No one will let Spencer forget what her father did, but she is still determined to fly, and the Krell just made that a possibility. They've doubled their fleet, 
making Spencer's world twice as dangerous. But their desperation to survive might just take her skyward. And that is the title of the book, Skyward, Claim the Stars, by Brandon Sanderson. It's great science fiction, great, great, exciting, very clever. Last year we reviewed his short novella uh, called Snapshots. That was also brilliant, very, very clever. Another book that... uh, would possibly make a big change in people's lives. This is non-fiction. It's a locally published book, published by Human and Rousseau in Cape Town. It's called 63 Days to Optimum Health, and it's by Sally Ann Creed. It takes your brain 21 days to forge a new neural pathway. A further 64, sorry, a further 42 days to entrench it. Altogether, that's 63 days. That's why the book's called 63 Days. To a new you. Are you often tired, stressed or unwell, sleeping poorly and eating badly? In 63 Days to Optimum Health, best-selling author and nutritional therapist Sally Ann Creed calls on advances in neuroscience to help you live your best life. By making informed choices, you can enjoy day-long energy and ongoing health. She explains the underlying principles of good health and provides tried and tested scientific advice. This comprehensive guide offers sections on gut health, marketplace myths, substitutions for unhealthy old favorites, superfoods that improve immunity and nourish the body, and delicious cook-from-scratch recipes that celebrate the benefits of making whole food at home. A nine-week boot camp helps you draw up meal plans, make lifestyle changes, and breaks your dependence on sugar, wheat, and dairy, while keeping track of your progress and encouraging you. Sally Ann Creed's life-enhancing holistic approach shows you the full power of a complete body, mind, and spirit reboot in just 63 days. And now you know why it's 63 days. Because as I started off, it takes your brain 21 days to forge a new neural pathway, for the 42 days to entrench it, So that's why she says there's 63 days to a new you. The book is very accessible. It's beautifully beautifully produced, and it's very easy to follow with lots of recipes at the end of the book. Very, very practical and very, very, very accessible. Then from the same publishing company, NB Books, but under a different imprint, Tafelbach has, towards the end of last year, released a book called Stein Heist by Rob Rose. Rob Rose is one of South Africa's foremost inve- investigative financial journalists. And what, uh, what, who would overlook the Stein, Stein, Steinhoff's Huge, spectacular fall to earth at the end of 2018 and not think of a book about what actually happened. And Rob Rose is perfectly placed to have been the author of that book because he's an award-winning journalist. He's the editor of the Financial Mail. 
He earned a law degree and then took on financial fraud and corporate governance beats at the business day before moving to the Financial Mail in 2007. There at the Financial Mail, he exposed the Barry Tannenbaum Ponzi scheme and he wrote the book, The Great Scam, How Barry Tannenbaum Cons South Africa's Business Elite about that scheme. He has since worked at the Sunday Times as editor of the Business Times, and he has won numerous awards, including the Sunlamp Financial Journalist of the Year. So, Steinhoff, spectacular fall to disgrace, South African financial journalist who's expert in these type of stories. Put them together, you get Tafelbach's Steinheist, Marcus Eurster, Steinhoff, and South Africa's biggest corporate fraud. On the front of the book, there's a shout-out from Jacques Poe, an astonishing piece of investigative journalism exposing greed, plunder, and betrayal on a grand scale. The Steinhoff crash wiped out more than 200 billion rand off the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. It raised more than half the wealth of tycoon Christo Risa and knocked the pension funds of, and of millions of ordinary South Africans. When this investor's darling was exposed as a house of cards, tales of fraudulent accounting, a lavish lifestyle involving multi-million rand racehorses and ructions in the Stellenbosch Mafia made headlines around the world. As regulators tally up the cost, financial mail editor Rob Rose reveals the real story behind Steinhoff. Based on dozens of interviews with key players in South Africa, the UK, Germany and the Netherlands, and documents not yet public, Steinheist, the book, reveals how Bruno Steinhoff formed the company by doing business in the communist bloc and apartheid South Africa, how the Marcus myth started in the dusty streets of Kharankua and grew thanks to a bit of luck in a 1998 takeover, how Euster Insiders shifted nasty liabilities off Steinhoff's balance sheets to secretive companies overseas in order to present a false picture of the profits, and how Avisa was lucky to lose only 59 billion rand, and how ShopRite narrowly escaped getting caught in Steinhoff's web, and what happened behind closed boardroom doors in the frantic week before Eusta resigned. This is a book that reads, reads like a... F- uh, a form script. It's very, it's very immediate. It is available. It was released into the book market at the end of last year. So Steinhaust is a, Steinheist is available, written by Rob Rose and from Tafelberg, a publisher that really punches above its size in the non-fiction book publishing market in South Africa. Another non-fiction book, this one is a collection of letters. It's called Written in History, Letters that Changed the World. And it's written, well, it's edited and compiled by Simon Sebag Montefiore. Simon Sebag Montefiore is the author of prize-winning best-selling books that have been published in 48 languages. They include Catherine the Great and Potemkin, which was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize. Also, Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar, which won the BBA History Book of the Year prize. Then, Young Stalin, which won the Costa Biography Award. And the LA Times Book Prize for Biography and the Grand Prix de la Biographie Politique. He's also the author of Jerusalem, the Biography of the City. And 
the Romanovs, 1613 to 1918, and he's also an author of the Mosque trilogy of novels, that's Sashenka, Red Sky at Noon, One Night at Midnight. He's also written a few children's books. He's married to Santa Montefiore, and some of his books are being developed as films and TV drama series. So as you can hear, he's interested in history, especially Russian history. He's written about Jewish history as well. That's the book Jerusalem. And here he's indulging his passion for history and for the written word by collecting a number of very important letters. Written in history celebrates the great letters of world history, a creative culture and personal life. Claimed historian Simon Sebag Montefiore selects letters from ancient times to the 21st century. Some are noble and inspiring, some despicable and unsettling. Some are exquisite works of literature, others brutal, coarse and frankly outrageous. Many are erotic, others heartbreaking. The writers vary from Elizabeth I, Ramses the Great and Leonard Cohen, to Emmeline Pankhurst, Nelson Mandela, Stalin, Michelangelo, Suleiman the Magnificent, and unknown people in extraordinary circumstances, from love letters to calls for liberation, declarations of war to reflections and death. In the colorful, accessible style of a master storyteller, Montefiore shows why these letters are essential reading, how they enlighten our past, enrich the way we live now, and illuminate tomorrow. What he's done is he's divided the letters into different categories. So we have love, then we have family, creation, courage, discovery, tourism, war, blood, destruction, disaster, friendship, folly, decency, liberation, fate, power, downfall, and goodbye. And before every letter, he gives you just a little context so you understand when the letter was written. I'm just going to read one context and one letter just to give you a taste. This is in friendship from Franklin D. Roosevelt to Winston Churchill, 11 September 1939. To, to set the context, the first letter of friendship that would hold the West. On the 3rd of September 1939, Britain declared war on Germany, which had invaded Poland. The Second World War had begun. Churchill returned to the cabinet at first, as first Lord of the Admiralty, the job he had held in 1914, at the start of the First World War. A few days later, he receives this letter from the U.S. President, FDR, who had served in a similar job, Assistant, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, during the First World War. They had met passingly 20 years earlier, in and in 1933, when Roosevelt won the presidential election, Churchill had sent him a copy of his biography of the Duke of Marlborough, but he had not acknowledged it. Now he does so and opens up a secret channel with Churchill. Although Roosevelt mentions Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in this letter, it is a formality since both men know how inept Chamberlain has been in appeasing Hitler. Roosevelt is betting that Churchill is the coming man. When he became Prime Minister eight months later, the alliance would be decisive. Now, the letter is very short. Dear, Mr. My dear Churchill, 
It is because you and I occupied similar positions in the First World War that I want you to know how glad I am that you are back again in the Admiralty. Your problems are, I realize, complicated by new factors, but the essential is not very different. What I want you and the Prime Minister to know is that I shall at all times welcome it if you will keep me in touch personally with anything you want me to know about. You can always send sealed letters through your pouch or my pouch. I'm glad you did the Marlboro volumes before this thing started, and I much enjoyed reading them. With my sincere regards, faithfully yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. That's the type of context and letter that Simon Sebag Montefiore has collected together in written in history letters that changed the world. I chuckled when I read the letter from uh, mother to daughter. The, the daughter was Marie Antoinette, and her mother was the empress of the, Aust- the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, telling her daughter at the age of 19, or just after Marie Antoinette had been married to Louis XVI of France, that as the princess and now the queen, you are far too frivolous. The stories that I'm hearing in Vienna about what you're getting up to in, in Paris worry me. And you don't want to go down in history as someone who's very frivolous and not in touch with the people. That's the type of letters that Simon Spag Montefiore has gathered together in Written in History. It's published by Badenfeld and Nicholson. The next book I want to talk about is um, a book that I had to get a copy of because it was being reviewed with the most unbelievably glowing reviews by everybody in the U.S. when it came out towards the end of last year and in the U.K. at the beginning of this year, just a month ago. The book is The Witch Elm by Tanner French. It's published by Viking, and it's quite a literary murder mystery. One night changes everything for Toby. A brutal attack leaves him traumatized, unsure even of the person he used to be. He seeks refuge at the family's ancestral home, the Ivy House, home to cherished memories of wild strawberry summers and teenage parties with his cousins. But a few days after Toby's arrival, the discovery is made. A skull, tucked neatly inside the elderly witch elm in the garden, and soon after... A body. As detectives begin to close in on them, Toby is forced to examine everything he thought he knew about his family and himself. This is a spellbinding standalone from a literary writer who turns the crime genre inside out. The witch elm asks what we become and what we're capable of if we no longer know who we are. Tanner French is a literary writer. She chooses to use her literary skills in murder mysteries, but I think she's highly underrated. She should be nominated for prizes, literary prizes, but because she writes murder mysteries, she's put into the genre category, and she's overlooked. But if you are in a book club, or you go into the bookshops, you're looking for a really great murder mystery to read, that's also quite literary. Give Tanner French chance. The next book that I want to talk about, and my wife read it, she absolutely loved it. I couldn't walk around the house without hearing snippets of the book everywhere I went. (laughs) She would tell me something about the book. But when I 
spoke to the publishers, I was so disheartened to hear that the book hadn't been that well subscribed by the or bought by the bookshops. Uh, I was just heartbroken because War Doctor by David Knott, Surgery on the Front Line, truly deserves to be this year's When Breath Becomes Air. It is the type of book that people who are interested in anything medical should be going out and they should be reading. It should become a word-of-mouth phenomenon. And this time next year, everybody should have read War Doctor by David Knott. I'll speak about this book straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The book that I want you all to go out and buy and turn into a bestseller, because it is such a powerful book, is War Doctor, Surgery on the Frontline by David Knott. This is a gripping true story of a frontline trauma surgeon. For more than 25 years, David Knott has taken unpaid leave from his job as a general and vascular surgeon with the NHS, that's in the UK, to volunteer in conflict zones and areas blighted by natural disasters. Driven both by compassion and passion, the desire to help others, and the thrill of extreme personal danger, he is now widely acknowledged to be the most experienced trauma surgeon in the world. But David began to realize that flying into a catastrophe was not enough. Doctors on the ground needed to learn how to treat the appalling injuries that war inflicts upon its victims. So he began training other doctors in the art of saving lives threatened by bombs and bullets. War Doctor is his extraordinary story. He's a Welsh consultant surgeon specializing in general and vascular surgery. He was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2012 in the birthday honors, the Queen's birthday honors, and in 2016 he received the Robert Burns Humanitarian Award and the Pride of Britain Award. In 2015, David and his wife, Ellie, set up the David Knott Foundation. He currently lives in London. He has put his life on the line for 25 years to bring medical skills, surgeon skills, to front line, war zones, and to places of natural disaster. In late 1993, the surgeon David Knott traveled from his home in London to a hospital in war-torn Sarajevo on his first humanitarian mission. Two weeks into the trip, a teenage boy was brought in with a metal fragment in his abdomen, sustained from one of the mortars that had been raining down on the city for days. He was anesthetized and taken to an operating theater where Knott set about opening his abdomen to inspect the damage. After making the incision, he heard an enormous crash, and the lights went out. The hospital had taken a direct hit, leaving him in the dark, trying to stem the bleeding by squeezing the boy's aorta while pressing down on a swab. When the lights eventually flickered back on, Knott realized he was all alone. The rest of the team, an anesthetist, a scrub nurse, and an assistant, had fled the room and taken cover in the basement. The boy, meanwhile, had died. In War Doctor Knott's account, Knott's account of 25 years dispensing life-saving treatment in some of the most dangerous places in the world. He describes his fury at being having been abandoned, though later he comes to understand his colleagues' actions. He has a quote, This experience taught me two things. First, I'd have to toughen up. Second, 
I also had to take care of myself. Not just because there was no one else there who was going to do that for me, but because I wouldn't be helping anyone if I was dead. This book goes from war zone to war zone. We have the story, the stories, and then we have David Knott's reflections on why he does what he does, and they are very compelling. Why would he so willingly put himself in the path of danger? Part of it, he says, is altruism, a simple desire to save lives and put his skills in general and vascular surgery to the best possible use. However, his first trip to Sarajevo reveals another reason. There, while traveling with a patient in an ambulance across the city, the vehicle was targeted by a sniper. Not the patient and this driver survived, but the porter traveling with them died from bullet wounds to the chest, face and neck. Not describes how this, his shock at the attack was followed by relief at having escaped death. But then he observes another feeling. I felt elated, exhilarated, euphoric. I never felt more alive. It was as if I had been reborn. If I could cope with this, I thought I could cope with anything. We follow his subsequent travels to conflicts and disaster zones in Afghanistan, Libya, Sierra Leone, Algeria, Iraq, Haiti, Syria. He even goes to Gaza. We find him operating in buildings shattered by shelling and gunfire in mobile hospitals on one occasion outdoors on a concrete slab in full view of passers-by. Equipment is invariably rudimentary. The staff often, though not always, untrained, and blood and medicine in short supply, day in, day out, and often at risk of imprisonment or execution from terrorists who regard Westerners as political capital, not deals with the human cost of modern warfare, with its mortars, barrel bombs, and sniper fire. Among the more depressing trends in today's conflicts, especially in Syria, is the direct targeting of hospitals and their staff. To bomb and destroy hospitals is not just sinful, he says, it is evil. Not is unsparing in his descriptions of civilian injuries. The Haitian baby pulled out of a collapsed building with a crushed arm and a section of her, a section of her skull missing. The pregnant woman deliberately shot in the stomach by snipers in Aleppo. The bullets coming to rest in her unborn child's head. All make for astonishing and distressing reading. It's no wonder that there are times when not a man accustomed to such scenes breaks down and cries. Yet amid the chaos and trauma, he is still able to admire a beautiful sky, an elegant piece of architecture with the sounds of the early morning prayer emanating from a nearby mosque. From these sterner moments, we get rare snapshots of Knott's interior life. This is the book, War Doctor by David Knott. It's subtitled Surgery on the Frontline. It is extremely powerful, and it deserves to be very, very widely read. Write this name down, War Doctor. Write down the author's name, David Knott. And when you're next in a bookshop, request it. Let them order your copy and expose yourself to some of the reality that's going on in the front lines, crisis zones, war zones in the world at the moment, but from a medical perspective. Uh, all the books that we are mentioning on the on the show today have all been the covers have all been posted on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on one one point nine High FM, and all the covers will be all they're all there already. The next book is going to do two quick ones. This book has been 
selected by Reese Witherspoon's book club, where the crawdads sing by Delia Owens. And I think there's a movie that's going to be made. Reese Witherspoon said, I can't even express how much I love this book. I didn't want the story to end. For years, rumors of The Marsh Girl have haunted Barclay Cove, a quiet town on the North Carolina coast. So in late 1969, when handsome Chase Andrews is found dead, the locals immediately suspect Kia Clark, the so-called Marsh Girl. But Kia is not what they say. Sensitive and intelligent, she has survived for years alone in the marsh that she calls home, finding threads in the gulls and lessons in the sand. Then the time comes when she yearns to be touched and loved. When two young men from town become intrigued by her wild beauty, Kia opens herself to a new life until the unthinkable happens. This book is perfect for fans of Barbara Kingsolver. When the Crawdads Sing is at once an exquisite ode to the natural world, a heartbreaking coming-of-age story, and a surprising tale of possible murder. The author Delia Owens reminds us that we are forever shaped by the children we once were and that we are all subject to the beautiful and violent secrets that nature keeps. I'll be back with another book that has been selected by Reese Witherspoon. I don't go by her um, recommendations alone. It just happens that I think these books are so good. I wanted to read them and she also happened to fall in love with them straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we're going to talk about, very briefly, a book called Daisy Jones and the Sick by Taylor Jenkins Reid. The book will be available in the shops next week. It's published by Hutchinson, and it is written as an oral history, so it's just interviews with people, the name and what they said, of a 1960s and 70s band. Everyone knows Daisy Jones and the Six. They sold out arenas from coast to coast. Their music defined an era, and every girl in America idolized Daisy. But on July 12, 1979, on the night of their final concert, they split. Nobody ever knew why. Until now. Drift down sun-bleached streets, lose yourself in the California sound, find beauty in a dirty bar, love your life, Love like your life depends on it. Carry on after the party stops. Believe in what you're fighting for. That's the type of vibe that you'll find in Daisy Jones and the Six. It's a little bit of a hard sell to tell a person to read what's a novel that's presented as an oral history of a band, a 70s band. But once you start, you'll find that you are hooked to Taylor Jenkins Reads. Daisy Jones and the Six. It's a great piece of novelization of 1970s Californian music and rock bands. Then another book. The author actually needs no introduction to the literary reader, Marlon James, who won the Booker Prize for A Brief History of Seven Killings. He's born in Jamaica. He currently lives in America. He divides his time between Minnesota and New York. And what he decided to do is he decided to give Africa their Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones. But in Marlon Brand, sorry, in, in Marlon James's style. So the style is almost hallucinatory. It's very 
surreal. It's very, very, it's dreamlike. The story is an African mythology, an African quest that's played itself out, but now it's being told by one of the people involved in the quest. And Marlon James is planning on writing a trilogy. It's going to be called the Dark Star Trilogy. And each book is going to retell the same story, but from the perspective of a different person, a different person involved. So this one starts, the child is dead, there's nothing left to know. Tracker is known far and wide for his skills as a hunter. He has a nose, people say, and he always works alone. But when he's engaged to find a child who has disappeared three years ago, he must break his own rules, joining a fellowship of eight very different mercenaries working together to find the boy. Tracking the lost boy sent through ancient cities into dense forests and across deep rivers, Tracker starts to wonder, who is this boy? Why has he been missing for so long? Why do so many people want to keep Tracker from finding him? And most important of all, who is telling the truth and who is lying? And the, boy, the book starts off the very, very first, the very first page. He starts off, the child is dead. There's nothing left to know. And then starts the recounting of the story. And Tracker is in a jail and he's been held with a few other people who were part of this group to go and find the dead boy. And this is Tracker's story. Drawing from vivid African history and mythology, Marlon James weaves a, a saga of breathtaking adventure, powerful intrigue. It's quite mesmerizing. It's a unique meditation on the nature of truth and power, but it's written in a very hallucinatory and dreamlike style. That is the style of Marlon James. That is what he introduced the literary world to in his Man Booker Prize winning novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but this book is making waves around the world. Movie rights have been sold. It's been compared to Black Panther in terms of creating an African mythology. Marlon James spent years researching African mythologies from all different parts of Africa and putting them to letting them give him inspiration for the writing of this book. So that is Marlon James. The book is Black Leopard Red Wolf. It's a great title. Black Leopard Red Wolf. And we're out of time. There were two other books that I wanted to get to today. We'll do them next week or the week after. Democracy Works, Rewiring Politics to Africa's Advantage by Greg Mills. And he had help in writing the book by Allah Sugan Abasanja, former pr- president of Nigeria, Jeffrey Herbst and Tandai Bitti. And the foreword was written by Ellen Johnson Sirleaf from Sierra Leone. The other book, which I can spend at least three hours talking about, is Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. Fascinating book by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. We'll be discussing those books in the next show. Until then, good Shabbos and keep reading.